Chapter Sixteen of Triplanetary, first in the Lensman series by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Chapter Sixteen: Super Ship in Action. Doctor Frederick Rodebush sat at the control panel of Triplanetary's newly reconstructed super ship, one finger poised over a small black button, facing the unknown. Though the physicist was. Yet he grinned whimsically at his friend. Something, whatever it is, is about to occur. The Boise is about to take off. Ready, Cleve? Shoot, laconically. Cleveland also was constitutionally unable to voice his deeper sentiments in times of stress. Rodebush drove his finger down, and instantly over both men there came a sensation akin to a tremendously intensified vertigo but a vertigo as far beyond the space-sickness of weightlessness as that horrible sensation is beyond mere earthly dizziness. The pilot reached weakly toward the board, but his leaden hands refused utterly to obey the dictates of his reeling mind. His brain was a writhing, convulsive mass of torment indescribable, expanding, exploding, swelling out with an unendurable pressure against its confining skull. Fiery spirals, laced with streaming, darting lances of black and green, flamed inside his bursting eyeballs. The universe spun and whirled in mad gyrations about him as he reeled drunkenly to his feet, staggering and sprawling. He fell. He realized that he was falling, yet he could not fall. Thrashing wildly, grotesquely in agony, he struggled madly and blindly across the room, directly toward the thick steel wall. The tip of one hair of his unruly thatch touched the wall, and the slim length of that single hair did not even bend as its slight strength brought to an instant halt the hundred and eighty-odd pounds of mass, mass now entirely without inertia, that was his body. But finally the sheer brain power of the man began to triumph over his physical torture. By force of will he compelled his grasping hands to seize a lifeline, almost meaningless to his dazed intelligence, and through that nightmare incarnate of hellish torture he fought his way back to the control board. Hooking one leg around a standard, he made a seemingly enormous effort and depressed a red button, then fell flat upon the floor. Weakly, but in a wave of relief and thankfulness, as his racked body felt again the wanted phenomena of weight and of inertia. White, trembling, frankly and openly sick, the two men stared at each other in half-amazed joy. It worked. Cleveland smiled wanly as he recovered sufficiently to speak, then leaped to his feet. Snap it up, Fred. We must be falling fast. We'll be wrecked when we hit. We're not falling anywhere. Rodebush, foreboding in his eyes, walked over to the main observation plate and scanned the heavens. However, it's not as bad as I was afraid it might be. I can still recognize a few of the constellations, even though they are all pretty badly distorted. That means that we can't be more than a couple of light-years or so away from the solar system. Of course, since we had so little thrust on, practically all of our energy and time was taken up in getting out of the atmosphere. Even at that, though, it's a good thing that space isn't a perfect vacuum, or we would have been clear out of the universe by this time. Huh? What are you talking about? Impossible. Where are we, anyway? Then we must be making mi Oh, I see, Cleveland exclaimed, somewhat incoherently, 
as he also stared into the plate. Right, we aren't traveling at all. Now, Rodebush replied, we are perfectly stationary relative to Tellus since we made that hop without inertia. We must have attained 100% neutralization. 100.00000, which we didn't quite expect. Therefore, we must have stopped instantaneously when our inertia was restored. Incidentally, that original pre-inertialist velocity, intrinsic velocity, suppose we could call it, is going to introduce plenty of complications. But we don't have to worry about them right now. Also, it isn't where we are that is worrying me. We can get fixes on enough recognizable stars to find that out in short order. It's when. That's right, too. Say we're two light-years away from home. You think maybe that we're two years older now than we were ten minutes ago? Interesting no end, and distinctly possible. Maybe even probable. I wouldn't know. There's been a lot of discussion on that theory, and as far as I know, we're the first ones who ever had a chance to prove or disprove it absolutely. Let's snap back to Tellus and find out right now. We'll do that after a little more experimenting. You see, I had no intention of giving us such a long push. I was going to throw the switches in and out, but you know what happened. However, there's one good thing about it. It's worth two years of anybody's life to settle that relativity time thing definitely one way or the other. I'll say it is. I'll say it is. But, say, we've got a lot of power on our ultra-wave, enough to reach Tellus, I think. Let's locate the sun and get in touch with Sam's. Let's work on these controls a little first, so we'll have something to report. Out here's a fine place to try the ship out, nothing in the way. All right with me, but I would like to find out whether I'm two years older than I think I am or not. Then, for four hours, they put the great super-ship through her paces, just as test pilots check up on every detail of performance of an airplane of new or radical design. They found that the horrible vertigo could be endured, perhaps in time even conquered, as space sickness could be conquered, by a strong will in a sound body, and that their new conveyance had possibilities of which even Rodebush had never dreamed. Finally, their most pressing questions answered, they turned their most powerful ultra-beam communicator toward the yellowish star which they knew to be Old Sol. Sam's, Sam's, Cleveland spoke slowly and distinctly. Rodebush and Cleveland, reporting from the space-eating Wampus, now directly in line with Beta Ursa Minoris from the sun, distance about 2.2 light-years, it will take six bands of tubes on your tightest beam, LSV-3, to reach us. Barring a touch of an unusually severe type of space sickness, everything worked beautifully, even better than either of us dared to believe. There's something we want to know right away. Have we been gone four hours and some odd minutes, or better than two years? He turned to Rodebush and went on. Nobody knows how fast this ultra-wave travels, but if it goes as fast as we did coming out, it's no creeper. I'll give him about thirty minutes, then shoot in another. But, interrupting Cleveland's remark, the care-ravaged face of Virgil Sams appeared sharp and clear upon the plate, and his voice snapped curtly from the speaker. "'Thank God you're alive and twice that the ship works!' he exclaimed. "'You've been gone four hours, eleven minutes, and forty-one seconds. But never mind about abstract theorizing. Get back here, to Pittsburgh, as fast as you can drive. That Nevian vessel, or another one like her, is mopping up the city, 
and has destroyed half the fleet already. We'll be back there in nine minutes, Rodebush snapped into the transmitter. Two to get from here to atmosphere, four from atmosphere down to the hill, and three to cool off. Notify the full four-shift crew, everybody we've picked out, don't need anybody else. Ship, equipment, and armament are ready. Two minutes to atmosphere? Think you can do it? Cleveland asked as Rodebush flipped off the power and leaped to the control panel. You might throw at that. We could do it in less than that if we had to. We use scarcely any power at all coming out, and I'm going to use quite a lot going back. The physicist explained rapidly as he set the dials which would determine their flashing course. The master switches were thrown, and the pangs of inertialessness again assailed them, but weaker far this time than ever before, and upon their lookout plates they beheld a spectacle never before seen by eye of man. For the ultra-beam, with its heterodyned vision, is not distorted by any velocity yet attained, as are the ether-borne rays of light. Converted into light only at the plate, it showed their progress as truly as though they had been traveling at a pace to be expressed in the ordinary terms of miles per hour. The yellow star that was the sun detached itself from the firmament and leaped toward them, swelling visibly, momently, into a blinding monster of incandescence. And toward them also flung the earth, enlarging with such indescribable rapidity that Cleveland protested involuntarily, in spite of his knowledge of the peculiar mechanics of the vessel in which they were. "'Hold it, Fred! Hold it! Way enough!' he exclaimed. "'I'm using only a few thousand kilograms of thrust, and I'll cut that as soon as we touch atmosphere, long before she can even begin to heat,' Rodebush explained. "'Looks bad, but we'll stop without a jar.' "'What would you call this kind of flight, Fritz?' Cleveland asked. "'What's the opposite of inert?' "'Damned if I know.' Isn't any, I guess. Light? No. How would free be? Not bad. Free and inert maneuvering, eh? Okay. Flying free, then, the supership came from her practically infinite velocity to an almost instantaneous halt in the outermost, most tenuous layer of the Earth's atmosphere. Her halt was but momentary. Inertia restored, she dropped at a sharp angle downward, more than dropped. She was forced downward by one full battery of projectors, projectors driven by iron-powered generators. Soon they were over the hill, whose violet screens went down at a word. Flaming a dazzling white from the friction of the atmosphere through which she had torn her way, the Boise slowed abruptly as she neared the ground, plunging toward the surface of the small but deep artificial lake below the hill's steel apron. Into the cold waters the spaceship dove, and even before they could close over her, furious geysers of steam and boiling water erupted as the stubborn alloy gave up its heat to the cooling liquid. Endlessly the three necessary minutes dragged their slow way into time, but finally the water ceased boiling, and Rodebush tore the ship from the lake and hurled her into the gaping doorway of her dock. The massive doors of the airlocks opened, and while the full crew of picked men hurried aboard with their personal equipment, Sams talked earnestly to the two scientists in the control room. And about half the fleet is still in the air. They aren't attacking. They are just trying to keep her from doing much more damage until you can get there. How about your takeoff? We can't launch you again. The tracks are gone. 
But you handle her easily enough coming in. That was my fault, Rodebush admitted. I had no idea that the fields would extend beyond the hull. We'll take her out on the projectors this time, though, the same as we brought her in. She handles like a bicycle. The projector blast tears things up a little, but nothing serious. Have you got that Pittsburgh beam for me yet? We're about ready to go. Here it is, Dr. Rodebush, came Norma's voice, and upon the screen there flashed into being the view of the events transpiring above that doomed city. The dock is empty and sealed against your blast. Goodbye and power to your tubes, came Sam's ringing voice. As the words were being spoken, mighty blasts of power raved from the driving projectors, and the immense mass of the supership shot out through the portals and upward into the stratosphere. Through the tenuous atmosphere the huge globe rushed with ever-mounting speed, and while the hope of Triplanetary drove eastward, Rodebush studied the ever-changing scene of battle upon his plate, and issued detailed instructions to the highly trained specialist manning every offensive and defensive weapon. But the Nevians did not wait to join battle until the newcomers arrived. Their detectors were sensitive, operative over untold thousands of miles, and the ultra-screen of the hill had already been noted by the invaders as the Earth's only possible source of trouble. Thus the departure of the Boise had not gone unnoticed, and the fact that not even with his most penetrant rays could he see into her interior had already given the Nevian commander some slight concern. Therefore, as soon as it was determined that the great globe was being directed toward Pittsburgh, the fish-shaped cruiser of the void went into action. High in the stratosphere, speeding eastward, the immense mass of the Boise slowed abruptly, although no projector had slackened its effort. Cleveland, eyes upon interferometer grading and spectrophotometer charts, fingers flying over calculator keys, grinned as he turned toward Rodebush. Just as you thought, Skipper, an ultra-band pusher. C4V63L29. Shall I give him a little pull? Not yet. Let's feel him out a little before we force a close-up. We've got plenty of mass. See what he does when I put full push on the projectors. As the full power of the Tellurian vessel was applied, the Nevian was forced backward, away from the threatened city, against the full drive of her every projector. Soon, however, the advance was again checked, and both scientists read the reason upon their plates. The enemy had put down reinforcing rods of tremendous power. Three compression members spread out fanwise behind her, bracing her against the low mountainside, while one huge tractor beam was thrust directly downward, holding in an unbreakable grip a cylinder of earth extending deep down into bedrock. Two can play at that game and Rodebush drove down similar beams and forward-reaching tractors as well. Strap yourselves in solid, everybody, he sounded in general warning. Something is going to give way somewhere soon, and when it does, we'll get a jolt. And the promised jolt did indeed come soon. Prodigiously massive and powerful as the Nevian was, the Boise was even more massive and more powerful, and as the already enormous energy feeding the tractors, pushers, and projectors was raised to its inconceivable maximum, 
the vessel of the enemy was hurled upward, backward, and that of earth shot ahead with a bounding leap that threatened to strain even her mighty members. The Nevian anchor rods had not broken. They had simply pulled up the vast cylinders of solid rock that had formed their anchorages. "'Grab him now!' Rodebush yelled. And even while an avalanche of falling rock was burying the countryside, Cleveland snapped a tractor ray upon the flying fish and pulled tentatively. Nor did the Nevian now seem averse to coming to grips. The two warring super-dreadnoughts darted toward each other, and from the invader there flooded out the dread crimson opacity which had theretofore meant the doom of all things Solarian. Flooded out and engulf the immense globe of humanity's hope in its spreading cloud of redly impenetrable murk, but not for long. Triplanetary supership boasted no ordinary terrestrial defense, but was sheathed in screen after screen of ultra-vibrations, imponderable walls, it is true, but barriers impenetrable to any unfriendly wave. To the outer screen the red veil of the Nevians clung tenaciously, licking greedily at every square inch of the shielding sphere of force, but unable to find an opening through which to feed upon the steel of the Boise's armor. "'Get back! Way back! Go back and help Pittsburgh!' Rodebush drove an ultra-communicator beam through the murk to the instruments of the terrestrial admiral, for the surviving warships of the fleet, its most powerful units, were hurling themselves forward to plunge into that red destruction. None of you will last a second in this red field, and watch out for a violet field pretty soon. It'll be worse than this. We can handle them alone, I think. But if we can't, there's nothing in the system that can help us. And now the hitherto passive screen of the supership became active. At first invisible, it began to glow in fierce violet light, and as the glow brightened to unbearable intensity, the entire spherical shield began to increase in size. Driven outward from the supership as a center, its advancing surface of seething energy consumed the crimson murk as a billow of blast furnace heat consumes the cloud of snowflakes in the air above its cupola. Nor was the red death mist all that was consumed. Between that ravening surface and the armor skin of the Boise there was nothing. No debris, no atmosphere, no vapor, no single atom of material substance. The first time in terrestrial experience that an absolute vacuum had ever been attained. Stubbornly contesting every foot of way lost, the Nevian fog retreated before the violet sphere of nothingness. Back and back it fell disappearing altogether from the space as the violet tide engulfed the enemy vessel. But the flying fish did not disappear. Her triple screens flashed into furiously incandescent splendor, and she entered unscathed that vacuous sphere, which collapsed instantly into an enormously elongated ellipsoid, at each focus a madly warring ship of space. Then, in that tube of vacuum, was waged a spectacular duel of ultra-weapons, weapons impotent in air, but deadly in empty space. Beams, rays, and rods of titanic power smote cracklingly against ultra-screens equally capable. Time after time, each contestant ran the gamut of the spectrum with his every available ultra-force, 
only to find all channels closed. For minutes the terrible struggle went on, then— Cooper, Adlington, Spencer, Dutton, Rodebush called into his transmitter. Ready? Can't touch him on the Ultra, so I'm going into the macro bands. Give him everything you have as soon as I collapse the violet. Go. At the word, the violet barrier went down, and with a crash as of a disrupting universe, the atmosphere rushed into the void. And through the hurricane there shot out the deadliest material weapons of Triplanetary, torpedoes, non-ferrous, ultra-screened, beam-dirigible torpedoes charged with the most effective forms of material destruction known to man. Cooper hurled his canisters of penetrating gas, Adlington his allotropic iron atomic bombs, Spencer his indestructible armor-piercing projectiles, and Dutton his shatterable flask of quintessence of corrosion a sticky, tacky liquid of such dire potency that only one rare solarian element could contain it. Ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred were thrown as fast as the automatic machinery could launch them, and the Nevians found them adversaries not to be despised. Size for size, their screens were quite as capable as those of the Boise. The Nevians' destructive rays glanced harmlessly from their shields, and the Nevians' elaborate screens neutralized at impact by those of the torpedoes, were impotent to impede their progress. Each projectile must needs be caught and crushed individually by beams of the most prodigious power, and while one was being annihilated, dozens more were rushing to the attack. Then, while the twisting, dodging invader was busiest with the tiny but relentless destroyers, Rodebush launched his heaviest weapon, the macro-beams. Prodigious streamers of bluish-green flame which tore savagely through course after course of Nevian screen, malevolent fangs driven with such power and velocity that they were biting into the very walls of the enemy vessel before the amphibians knew that their defensive shells of force had been punctured, and the emergency screens of the invaders were equally futile. Course after course was sent out only to flare viciously through the spectrum and to go black. Outfought at every turn, the now frantically dodging Nevian leaped away in headlong flight, only to be brought to a staggering, crashing halt as Cleveland nailed her with a tractor beam. But the Tellurians were to learn that the Nevians held in reserve a means of retreat. The tractor snapped, sheared off squarely by a sizzling plane of force, and the fish-shaped cruiser faded from Cleveland's sight, just as the Boise had disappeared from the communicator's plates of Radio Center, back in the hill, when she was launched. But though the plates in the control room could not hold the Nevian, she did not vanish beyond the ken of Randolph, now communications officer in the super-ship. For, warned and humiliated by his losing one speeding vessel from his plates in Radio Center, he was now ready for any emergency. Therefore, as the Nevian fled, Randolph's spy ray held her, automatically behind it as there was the full output of twelve special banks of iron-driven power tubes, and thus it was that the vengeful Earthman flashed immediately along the Nevian's line of flight. Inertialist now, pausing briefly from time to time to enable the crew to accustom themselves to the new sensations, Triplanetary's super-ship pursued the invader hurtling through the void with a velocity unthinkable.
He was easier to take than I thought he would be, Cleveland grunted, staring into the plate. I thought he had more stuff, too, Rodebush assented, but I guess Costigan got almost everything they had. If so, with all our own stuff and most of theirs besides, we should be able to take them. Conway's data indicated that they have only partial neutralization of inertia. If it's 100 percent, we'll never catch them, but it isn't. There they are. And this time I'm going to hold her or burn out all our generators trying, Cleveland declared grimly. Are you fellows down there able to handle yourselves yet? Fine. Start throwing out your cans. Space-hardened veterans all, the other Tellurian officers had fought off the horrible nausea of inertialessness, just as Rodebush and Cleveland had done. Again the ravening green macro-beams tore at the flying cruiser. Again the mighty frames of the two spaceships shuddered sickeningly as Cleveland clamped on his tractor rod. Again the highly dirigible torpedoes dashed out with their freights of death and destruction. And again the Nevian sheer plane of force slashed at the Boise's tractor beam, but this time the mighty puller did not give way. Sparkling and spitting high-tension sparks, the plane bit deeply into the stubborn rod of energy. Brighter, thicker, and longer grew the discharges as the gnawing plane drew more and more power. But in direct ratio to that power, the rod grew larger, denser, and ever harder to cut. More and more vivid became the pyrotechnic display, until suddenly the entire tractor rod disappeared. And at the same instant a blast of intolerable flame erupted from the Boise's flank, and the whole enormous fabric of her shook and quivered under the force of a terrific detonation. "'Randolph, I don't see them. Are they attacking or running?' Rodebush demanded. He was the first to realize what had happened. "'Running! Fast!' Just as well, perhaps, but get their line. Adlington. Here. Good. Was afraid you were gone. That was one of your bombs, wasn't it? Yes. Well launched, just inside the screens. Don't see how it could have detonated unless something hot and hard struck it in the tube. It would need about that much time to explode. Good thing it didn't go off any sooner, or none of us would have been here. As it is, Area 6 is pretty well done in, but the bulkheads held the damage to 6. What happened? We don't know exactly. Both generators on the tractor beam went out. At first I thought that was all, but my neutralizers are dead and I don't know what else. When the G4s went out, the fusion must have shorted the neutralizers. They would have made a mess. It must have burned a hole down into number six tube. Cleveland and I will come down and we'll all look around. Donning spacesuits, the scientists let themselves into the damaged compartment through the emergency airlocks and what a sight they saw. Both outer and inner walls of alloy armor had been blown away by the awful force of the explosion. Jagged plates hung awry, bent, twisted, and broken. The great torpedo tube, with all its intricate automatic machinery, had been driven violently backwards and lay piled in hideous confusion against the backing bulkheads. Practically nothing remained whole in the entire compartment. Nothing much we can do here, Rodebush said finally through his transmitter. Let's go see what number four generator looks like. That room, although not affected by the explosion from without, had been quite as effectively wrecked from within. It was still stiflingly hot. Its air was still reeking with the stench of burning lubricant, insulation, and metal. 
Its floor was half-covered by a semi-molten mass of what had once been vital machinery. For with the burning out of the generator bars, the energy of the disintegrating allotropic iron had had no outlet, and had built up until it had broken through its insulation and in an irresistible flood of power had torn through all obstacles in its path to neutralization. Hmm. Should have had an automatic shutoff. One detail we overlooked, Rodebush mused. The electricians can rebuild this stuff here, though that hole in the hull is something else again. I'll say it's something else, the grizzled chief engineer agreed. She's lost all her spherical strength. Anchoring a tractor with this ship now would turn her inside out. Back to the nearest dry planetary shop for us, I would say. Come again, chief, Cleveland advised the engineer. None of us would live long enough to get there. We can't travel inertialess unless the repairs are made, so if they can't be made without very much traveling, it's just too bad. I don't see how we could support our jacks. The engineer paused, then went on. If you can't give me Mars or tell us, how about some other planet? I don't care about atmosphere, or about anything but mass. I can stiffen her up in three or four days, if I can sit down on something heavy enough to hold our jacks and presses. But if we have to rig up space cradles around the ship herself, it'll take a long time, months probably. Haven't got a spare planet on hand, have you? We might have at that, Rodebush made surprising answer. A couple of seconds before we engaged, we were heading toward a sun with at least two planets. I was just getting ready to dodge them when we cut the neutralizers, so they should be fairly close somewhere. Yes, there's the sun, right over there. Rather pale and small, but it's close, comparatively speaking. We'll go back up into the control room and find out about the planets. The strange sun was found to have three large and easily located children and observation showed that the crippled spaceship could reach the nearest of these in about five days. Power was therefore fed to the driving projectors, and each scientist, electrician, and mechanic bent to the task of repairing the ruined generators, rebuilding them to handle any load which the converters could possibly put upon them. For two days the Boise drove on, then her acceleration was reversed, and finally a landing was effected upon the forbidding, rocky soil of the strange world. It was larger than the Earth, and of a somewhat stronger gravitation. Although its climate was bitterly cold, even in its short daytime it supported a luxuriant but outlandish vegetation. Its atmosphere, while rich enough in oxygen and not really poisonous, was so rank with indescribably fetid vapors as to be scarcely breathable. But these things bothered the engineers not at all, paying no attention to temperature or to scenery, and without waiting for a chemical analysis of the air, the space-suited mechanics leaped to their tasks, and in only a little more time than had been mentioned by the chief engineer, the hull and giant frame of the super-ship were as staunch as of yore. All right, skipper, came finally the welcomed word. You might try her out with a fast hop around this world before you shove off in earnest. Under the fierce blast of her projectors the vessel leaped ahead, and time after time, as Rodebush hurled her mass upon tractor beam or presser, the engineers sought in vain for any sign of weakness. The strange planet half-girdled, and the severest test passed flawlessly. Rodebush reached for his neutralizer switches. 
reached and paused, dumbfounded, for a brilliant purple light had sprung into being upon his panel, and a bell rang out insistently. What the hell? Rodebush shot out an exploring beam along the detector line and gasped. He stared, mouth open, then yelled, Roger is here, rebuilding his planetoid. Stations all. End of chapter 16